I appreciate so much the opportunity to be with you. I appreciate the elders inviting me to be the speaker this week. And that invitation encourages me more than you may realize when there are other men that could have been invited, in fact, that they've invited me. We'll say more about the lessons we have planned at the next hour. We have limited time here and a lot of ground to cover. But it's already been mentioned that um, this is first principle studies. The elders have asked me to deal with some first principles, and every lesson relates to that concept of some basics that have to do with teaching our friends and neighbors and at the same time strengthen our faith. We're going to begin this morning with the idea of the evidence for faith, and we'll talk about the other lessons as we unfold. I want to focus particularly, that's a broad spectrum, I'm talking about the evidence for faith, we could have a whole series on that, but I want to talk about the inspiration of the Scriptures. Believing that the Bible is the infallible Word of God is fundamental to all Bible study and is the foundation of all Bible preaching. That's why we begin here this morning. If the Bible is not the inspired Word of God, then anything else we have to say this week really means nothing. And if we could determine this morning the Bible is not the infallible Word of God, I'd be in favor of canceling the rest of the meeting and let's just all go home. Because there's no need for us to talk about what the Bible says if it's not the infallible Word of God. But if the Bible is the infallible Word of God and every word is inspired, then it is important to understand what it says about salvation, about the church, about grace, about works. Uh, about the church, etc., and on down the line with reference to the fundamentals we're going to be talking about. The first question we need to ask is the question of what does the Bible claim for itself? Does the Bible claim that it is from God? Does it claim that all of it is inspired? Does the Bible make the claim that it is complete? And does it make the claim that it is the infallible Word of God? And furthermore, does it claim that every word is inspired? And then we ask, what evidence could be cited to support such a claim? And we hope to cover that in our study this morning. I want us to begin with the claim. We're going to try to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the claim of inspiration in the Scriptures. We'll talk about the nature of inspiration. And then we're going to talk about the evidence of inspiration. And we're only going to get a sampling of all of that. But we're beginning with this foundation on which we're going to build everything else. We'll talk about Bible authority tonight, and that's based upon the fact that the Bible is indeed the inspired Word of God. So let's talk about the Bible claim. There are times when we need compounding evidence. There are some subjects that you cite one verse that makes the point, and we that's well enough, and we move on. But because we're talking about the claim the Bible has, we're going to look at a number of passages, and so I'm going to move quickly through a number of things. But let's consider the fact that this expression, thus saith the Lord, or an equivalent of that expression, is found some 2,000 times plus in the Bible. In the King James, you have, thus saith the Lord, found some 414 times. God said is found 46 times. And then the, the expression of the Lord said is found some 221 times. And that's just the beginning of those kinds of expressions that say something about, this is the word of the Lord. And so all through the Scriptures, in 66 books, you have some 2,000 times plus the claim is this came from God. This is the inspired Word of God. And so let's begin with this. Let's talk about the Old Testament claim. The Old Testament writers made the claim, we are speaking by the inspiration of God. God told us exactly what to say. Well, I want to subdivide that in several Categories are two or three. First of all, I want us to see that men of God claimed that they were speaking 
as they were directed by God. Here's where we're going to look at some compounding evidence. We're not going to read every word of these quotations. But let's start with David. I know of no expression in all of the Bible that better describes what inspiration is than this statement from David. David said this, the spirit, notice the underlying section, the spirit of the Lord spoke by me and his word was on my tongue. David said, the spirit was telling me what to say. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Well, here's what the Lord said about that. The Lord endorsed what David said, for he said, how did David in the Spirit call him Lord? So Jesus himself said that David was speaking by the Spirit. So David claimed to speak by inspiration. Well, Isaiah made the same claim. Isaiah said in Isaiah 1, verses 1 and 2, for the Lord has spoken. And then he tells us what the Lord said. Well, Isaiah wasn't the only prophet that did that. Jeremiah, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 1, in his call to be a prophet, Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Then look down at verse 7. And whatever I command you, this is the Lord speaking to Jeremiah, you shall speak. Look at verse 9. I have put my words in your mouth, God said to Jeremiah. I'm telling you exactly what you need to say. That's a claim of inspiration. Well, Ezekiel records this fact that the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel. So Ezekiel claimed to be speaking by the direction of God. Now this is an interesting statement from Zechariah. Zechariah not only made the claim for himself, but he said concerning other prophets, which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. He's saying not only was I inspired, but there were other prophets that were inspired of God. And so they were speaking by inspiration. I'm just trying to get you a flavor of how many times the Bible makes the claim of inspiration. But now still talking about the Old Testament, let's consider the fact that the New Testament said the Old Testament was inspired. It points back. In other words, when we come to the New Testament and we read about the Old Testament, it points back and says that Old Testament was inspired. Here's what Peter said. Peter said, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. We'll explain that in a moment. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So what I learned from that is that Peter said, by inspiration, that those prophets of old were inspired by the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament made that claim. The New Testament endorsed that. Let's come to the New Testament now. The New Testament makes the claim, Jesus spoke of the authority of the Scriptures. You might open your Bible and we'll take a little closer look at John 10 and verse 35, where Jesus said, if he called them gods, to whom the Word of God came, and the Scriptures cannot be broken. That is a quotation from Psalm 82 and in verse 6. Jesus called the Old Testament law in verse 34. He called it scriptures in verse 35. And here's what he said. He said the scriptures cannot be broken. That doesn't mean it cannot be violated. But he's simply saying it cannot be loosed or the scriptures cannot be undone. Meaning by that, he is affirming the authoritative nature of the scriptures. Psalm 82 and verse 6. Now, as B.B. Warfield said, and we'll quote Warfield a little bit later, he said, if this most casual statement from the Old Testament is authoritative, then so is all the rest. I say amen to that. How true that is. John 10, 35 affirms the authoritative nature of the Scriptures. Let's turn to Matthew 5. This is in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 18 where Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth shall pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass uh, from the law till all is fulfilled. 
Now, a jot was the smallest, the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle is the protrusion that you see um, up here on the screen that uh, would distinguish one letter from another letter. We might think of that much like being this uh, dotting of the I, the crossing of the T that would distinguish one letter from another. And so here is the point. The point of Matthew 5 is Jesus is saying the scriptures are true and reliable down to the smallest of detail. It's not that the Old Testament scriptures are generally true and they're pretty good, but there are some mistakes in that. But they are reliable down to the smallest of detail. Now, Jesus endorsed Old Testament stories. So if I can cite evidence, which we're not today going to do that, for example, the resurrection of Christ, the empty tomb proving that he was raised from the dead, which means that anything then he says is true. If he endorsed the Old Testament, then the Old Testament must be true. In other words, Jesus believed that what was recorded in the Old Testament was fact and not fiction. We're not going to read each one of these accounts, but he referred back to the creation account. He which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and Jesus endorsed the Genesis account. So I have confidence in that account, don't you? And furthermore, he endorsed the story of Noah and the flood. That's not a fictitious story. That's a true story. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, then he also endorsed the story of Sodom's judgment, Matthew chapter 11. He also endorsed the story of Lot's wife turning to a pillar of salt. Luke 17 and in verse 32. The story of Jonah and the well, which the modern critics have said that could not be true. Jesus said as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the well, so he would be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus endorsed those Old Testament stories, which tells us that indeed they are true. Let's move on. Let's talk about not only did Jesus speak of the authority of the Scriptures, but the apostles and other New Testament writers made the claim, we are speaking by the inspiration of God, like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and a host of others. Give you a sampling of that. Here's what they said. For example, Paul wrote to Timothy and said, now the Spirit expressly says. In other words, what I'm saying to you, Timothy, is by the Spirit of God. Peter would write in 2 Peter chapter 3, 15 and 16, he would talk about the writings of Paul and he would call those scripture. That means it came from God. Well, here's another expression. In Ephesians chapter 3, you're, you are familiar with this passage, how the prophets and the apostles were guided by the Spirit and they've written it down where we can read and understand. The claim is that came from the Spirit of God. Now, Paul said, when he came to Thessalonica, you received the message, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. What Paul said, when I was preaching to you, I, I claim to be speaking by the word of God. Here's another passage. John 16, the promise Jesus made to the apostles was the spirit would guide them into all truth. There's another passage. In Galatians chapter 1, Paul said the revelation he had received was not from men, but it came from God. I didn't learn this on my own. I learned this from the revelation that came from God. And he would tell the Corinthians, the things which I write are the commandments of the Lord. Now, I know that's a hurried look, but I'm trying to compound the evidence. But it's simply saying we have the same thing in the New Testament we had in the Old. One writer after another writer after another writer is saying we were speaking by the inspiration of God. The Bible abundantly makes that claim. Now, let's open our Bibles and look at what I would call some main passages that affirm inspiration. And you are familiar with 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And here's what the text says. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and for reproof and for correction and instruction in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's talk about what that passage is saying. It talks about the scriptures. It comes from graphe, which simply means writings or oracles. Now, what's interesting is that same writer, Paul, writing to the same recipient, Timothy, used that same word to include both Old and New Testament. Look at 1 Timothy 5 and 18. I'm understanding how he uses the term scripture. He said, for the scripture says, and notice the quotation, you shall not muzzle an ox that treads out the grain. Where is that found? Deuteronomy 25 and 4. Deuteronomy 25, that's Old Testament. But he not only says that, and, and here's another quotation, the laborer is worthy of his wages. Where was that found? Deuteronomy? Leviticus? No, that was found in Luke 10. That's New Testament. So he used that same term scripture to refer to both Old and New Testament. And he said all scripture, meaning both Old and New Testament, it includes all, leaves none out, is inspired of God. That literally means to the given by the very breath of God, A.T. Robertson observes. It refers to the fact that it came from God, and it does not refer to the fact of it having some impact or inspiring uh, effect upon the recipient of the message. It has to do with the origin of the message, that it came from the very breath of God. All Scripture is given by the breath of God. Here is a second passage, and you might turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This passage is describing the process of revelation and inspiration. It is not talking about heaven, as some have used this at funerals, to talk about eyes not seen nor ear heard nor in the heart of man the things God has prepared for him. And it, wouldn't it be wonderful to see heaven? We haven't seen that yet. That's not what this is about. It's about inspiration. What was hidden in the mind of God has now been revealed. I want you to notice verse 9 with me, he said. As it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. All right, what's the point? Man did not know the mind of God until it was revealed. That's the point. Now verse 10. But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. So God has revealed the things that were in his mind to us by the spirit of God. Now verse 11. For what man knows the things of man except the spirit of man who is in him? What's his point? He illustrates it that no one knows what's on your mind unless you reveal it. If I told you I'm thinking of a color, or I'm thinking of a person, or I'm thinking of an object, you have no idea what's in my mind until I reveal that to you. That's the point. Now verses 12 and 13. At verse 12, now we have received this, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. Now notice verse 13. His point at verse 12 and 13, that we now speak words, not of man's wisdom, but which the Holy Spirit teaches. Look at verse 13. These things we also speak not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. What Paul is saying is that which was revealed unto us was chosen by the very Spirit of God. More about that verse as time permits in a moment. Let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. In verses 20 and 21, another main passage I would cite with reference to the matter of inspiration. We alluded to it earlier, knowing this verse that no prophecy of scriptures of any private interpretation. But, he said, for holy men never, uh, for, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. 
His point when he says it is not a private interpretation is that prophecy did not owe its origin to man. He's not talking about how you interpret and understand the scriptures. But what he's saying is it doesn't owe its origin to man. But rather, the prophecy had its origin for God. For he says, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. This passage affirms the instrumentality of human authors. More about that in just a moment. Involved in inspiration. But this word moved is an interesting word. It means to be borne along as a ship is borne by the wind. And so you picture a ship, a, a, a sail ship or sailboat that is borne along by the wind wherever the wind would take that. And so these men were born or they were moved along by the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so here is an affirmation. The Holy Spirit was involved in the revelation of both Old and New Testament. But let's move on. Let's consider that, uh, let's talk about the nature now of the claim. What we've just tried to establish, and I know that's kind of a hurried look at that claim, both Old and New Testament made the claim abundantly the Bible indeed is inspired of God, makes that claim. Let's talk about the nature of inspiration, and let's first begin by defining inspiration. What is the claim of inspiration? B.B. Warfield, perhaps, said it as good as any human author could word it. That inspiration refers to the supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. That's exactly what David said, 2 Samuel 23, wasn't it? The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and His Word was on my tongue. That's what inspiration is. That's what inspiration involves. The Spirit of the Lord speaking and the Word was on my tongue. Let's talk about plenary inspiration. The Bible affirms plenary inspiration. What does that word mean? The word plenary just simply means all are complete. It has to do with in all aspects, essential or full. When we talk about plenary inspiration, we're talking about all of the Bible being inspired. Some modernists have the concept that the book of Matthew may be inspired, but I don't think James is inspired, someone says. And I think maybe Paul was inspired, but I'm not so sure that Mark was inspired, or maybe some other writer. But the Bible affirms all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That's affirming plenary inspiration. The psalmist in the Old Testament said, Psalm 119, 128, All thy precepts are right. All of them are right. And so what I see in 2 Peter chapter 3, chapter 1, what was said of one Old Testament prophet applied to other Old Testament prophets. If not, why not would be the question. So the affirmation is both Old and New Testaments are inspired. And one writer would be just as inspired as another. So when I read from the book of James, that is just as much the word of God as reading from Matthew. And if these men were writing by inspiration, if Paul said something, that's just as authoritative if I had a direct quotation from the Lord himself. Because they're writing by the inspiration of God. But secondly, I want us to, or thirdly, I may I suggest that the Bible tells us that it is verbally inspired. Many of our modernist friends may not disagree a whole lot with us when we talk about all the Bible being inspired, but they would deny verbal inspiration. Now, what are we talking about when we talk about verbal inspiration? Verbal inspiration refers to pertaining to words. In other words, every word of the Bible is inspired. Not only is the concept inspired, but every word is inspired of God. Well, let's consider what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 2, if you have your Bible and are so disposed to mark in your Bible, you might mark 1 Corinthians 2.13 if you don't have this marked in your Bible. 
please be advised and understand what this text is saying. That the very words were chosen by the Holy Spirit. We read this just a moment ago and we looked at the context. Let's go back. These things we also speak, the things that have been revealed by God, we also speak not in words. You might underline, circle that, mark, words. Not in words which man's wisdom teaches. All right, Paul, where'd you get your words? Which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. We write in words, Paul said. Where'd you get your words, Paul? We got it from the Holy Spirit. So the very words were chosen by the Holy Spirit. That's an affirmation of verbal inspiration. Every word is inspired of God. Now let's begin looking at some misconceptions about inspiration. With that principle in mind. Here's some misconceptions that people have concerning inspiration. One is the idea that what we call thought inspiration. And the idea of some modernist is that God gave the idea or the thought and then left the writer to choose the words that he wanted to choose. You ever read from some modernist commentator and you just kind of are puzzled when he gets to the writings of Paul and he may say something like, 1 Timothy 2, the role of women, that Paul overstated the case here. God did not mean for him to go this far. And you think, what on earth is he talking about? He believes in thought inspiration. He thinks God told him to write about the role of women and Paul got carried away and chose, chose the wrong words, you see. And that's a misconception of inspiration. That means the writings are subject to error. You don't like something in the New Testament or Old Testament? Just say, well, the writer just went too far. I don't think God intended that. You just dismiss. Here's another misconception somehow. And that is on the other end of the spectrum is what we might refer to as dictation. And that concept is that God dictated to each writer. The writers were much stenographers. And you say, well, I thought that's what verbal inspiration is. And in part it is. But this concept says the writings are void of, of personal background and vocabulary. Much like I would dictate to you. If I dictated a letter to you, it's going to be in my vocabulary because I don't know your vocabulary. And it's going to be my style of writing because I don't know your style of writing. But God, through inspiration, can choose the very words and yet do so with the vocabulary of the writer. Let's give some evidence of that in just a moment. But here's another misconception. And that is some think that inspiration is lost in translation. And the idea of that is, even today, sometimes in Bible class, some member of the church will say, if we just had knew the original language... I think we've lost inspiration. This is not really inspired like the original. If we just had the original documents and could read those, then we have the real inspired scriptures. Well, you are familiar with the Septuagint translation, I'm sure, noted by the Roman numeral 70, standing for the 72 scholars who in 285 B.C. in Alexandria and Egypt translated the Hebrew text of the Old Testament into Koine Greek. You say, what's the significance of the Septuagint translation? Do you realize that Jesus used and quoted from the Septuagint? Have you ever noticed the difference when, when uh, Jesus will say, Isaiah the prophet said, and you go back over to Isaiah and it reads just a little different, you say, I don't understand that. The, the quotation here doesn't match that one. That's because what you're reading in Isaiah is translated in English out of the Hebrew. But what you're reading over here in Matthew, or Mark, or Luke, or John, whatever the case may be, has been translated out of the Septuagint translation, which was translated out of the Hebrew. And there's your difference. But here's what I want you to notice. Jesus attributed those quotes to the writers and to God and believed that was inspired. Even though he was quoting from a translation. 
Inspiration is not lost in translation. And so what you have in your English text is the inspired word of God. It's not lost if it's a valid, reliable translation. And Jesus illustrated that for us. Let's talk about the use of the, the writer's vocabulary and background. Can be used and at the same time the Bible be inspired. Let me give you a sampling of that. Do you remember the story where about the rich man and Jesus warned about the uh, camel going through an eye of a needle? It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Some modernists have talked about how that that's some narrow passageway you can barely get a camel through, but you can push hard and finally get him through. It's not a narrow passageway. It's a literal needle. You say, well, it would be impossible to get a camel to go through an eye. That's the point. That's the point. But what's interesting is, Luke records the same thing, but they use different words for the word needle. I don't know what you think of when you think of a needle. I think of a sewing needle. My mother was a seamstress. There were needles all over the house. In the carpet, everywhere you look, there were needles. And that's what I think of when I think of a needle. Luke was a doctor. He used the word for suture needle. That's the first thing he would think of, wouldn't it? Can you see how God could choose the very words, but choose it in his vocabulary? There are 480 medical references in the writings of Luke. A sampling of that, in Luke 4, Peter's mother-in-law had a high fever, where Mark and Matthew just mentioned fever. He's using his flavor in his background. Luke 5, he talked about one who had leprosy being full of leprosy. But Matthew and Mark just mentioned he was a leper. And so there's more medical expressions found in the writings of Luke. Let's thirdly talk about the evidence of that in the time we have left. We've seen the claim of inspiration, the nature of inspiration. Let's spend the rest of our time talking about the evidence that could be cited of inspiration. How can I be assured the Bible is inspired? Well, let's start with this. Let's talk about archaeology. Archaeology is the science, according to Henry Morris, which excavates and analyzes ancient human settlements. And you say, that doesn't sound like much evidence to me. Well, let's see what Joseph Free said in Archaeology and the Bible History. He said, in addition to illuminating the Bible, archaeology has confirmed countless passages which have been rejected by critics as un unhistorical and contradictory to known facts. This aspect of archaeology forms a valuable part of the defense of the Scriptures commonly known as apologetics. In summary... It may be said that two of the main functions of Bible archaeology, get this, are the illumination and confirmation of the Bible. Now get the point. Archaeology does not prove the Bible to be true. In other words, we don't dig into the ancient ruins and come out with something and say, here is evidence the Bible is true and there is a God. I now know. But perhaps Roger Dixon made it as clear as anyone in the fall of unbelief. He said, our inquiry into Bible archaeology will produce evidence which verifies the historicity of the Bible. What's he saying? The historical accuracy of the Bible does not prove the inspiration of the Scriptures, of the Bible. For the Bible to be inspired, it must be historically accurate. Do you get his point? In other words, you don't go digging into the ancient ruins and come out with something and say, this now proves the Bible to be the Word of God. But for this to be the Word of God, it has to be historically accurate. And when we dig into the ruins, we find evidence that this is historically accurate. And it has to be accurate for it to be the inspired Word of God. And so it illuminates and confirms is what it does. Let me give you a sampling of that. Hezekiah's tunnel, for example. 
After Sargon's death, Sennacherib reigned in Assyria from 705 to 681 B.C. Hezekiah rebelled, 2 Kings 18. Time would forbid us to go into those passages. And 2 Chronicles 32 said he fortified the city. Now, one of the things that he did was he cut a tunnel from the Gihon Springs to the Pool of Siloam. The Gihon Springs are up here and the Pool of Siloam down here uh, on your maps, if you're, you're following that. And you see the, the dotted line. I'm colorblind. I guess that's blue. I'm not sure what color that is. But anyway, that what looks like blue or purple, whatever that color is, 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 the, is the, the tunnel that he dug. Now, in 1880, there was a boy playing near the Pool of Siloam, and he fell. And when he fell down and he was laying down, he noticed an inscription. And that inscription was written in Hebrew, the form of which was contemporary with the time period of Hezekiah. Now, here's an artist's rendition of what the boy saw. Uh, some kind of stone that had this inscription upon it. Here is the actual picture of that inscription, which is not as legible to us in that dark picture. But here's what the, the, the inscription said. And this was the account of the breakthrough. That is, digging the tunnel. They came from one end to the other and finally met in the middle. That's the point. And while the laborers were still working with their picks, each toward the other, while there were still three cubics to be broken through, the voice could be heard calling to the other. And because of the crack or the split in the overlap of the rock from the south to the north, and at the moment of the breakthrough, the laborers struck each other toward each other, pick against pick, and then the water flowed from the spring to the pool for 1,200 cubics. And the height of the rock above their heads of the laborers was 100 cubics. It describes the breakthrough of digging this tunnel. Well, here's a picture of the tunnel. You can go to Jerusalem and you can actually go into that tunnel and you can, you can see the water flowing in the tunnel. And you say, does that prove the scripture? No, that didn't prove anything about the Bible being true. What it does prove is the Bible is historically accurate in the account in Second Chronicles and Second Kings. And the Bible has to be historically accurate for it to be true and inspired. Give you another sampling of that. Let's talk about the uh, cylinder of Cyrus. Isaiah had prophesied in chapter 44 and chapter 45, both of those chapters, that Cyrus, now that was 200 years before, by the way. We'll come back to that if time permits. That Cyrus would be the leader that would allow the captives to come back into the land. By name. Not just a Persian ruler, but it would be Cyrus by name. Well, the Bible says that Cyrus was the one. Ezra 1 tells us that. Second Chronicles 36 tells us that. Well, any evidence that that was historically accurate? Well, in 1879, there was a cylinder found that was nine inches long. It tells, it's found in the ancient city of Babylon. It tells of Cyrus overtaking Babylon in 539. That's when Babylon fell, we know. And it tells of his allowing the captives to return at a humanitarian effort to get them back into the land. So let's see and make a comparison between the text. The Cyrus' cylinder said, I am Cyrus, king of all, the great king, the mighty king, the king of Babylon, king of Summer and Akkad, the king of the four corners of the earth. Well, now, Ezra's account said, now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord came to him, and he's king, uh, Cyrus was the king of Persia. I won't read every word of that. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, all the kingdoms of the earth the Lord has given unto me. In other words, I claim to be the king of all the earth. Said the same thing. So did 2 Chronicles 36 say essentially the same thing that we find on Cyrus' cylinder. What does that give me evidence of? That the Bible account of 2 Chronicles, 2 Kings is historically accurate. Let's go a little bit further. Let's talk about scientific foreknowledge. Now, we could go on with archaeology, and you could do a whole series on archaeology. Uh, I'm not prepared this morning to do that, but, but there are those who could do that and just go on for the whole week on archaeology. 
Let's talk about scientific foreknowledge. I'm just trying to give you a sampling of the kind of evidence that could be cited for the evidence of the inspiration of the Scriptures. Larry Dickens said this. He said scientific foreknowledge in the Bible is simply the statement of scientific facts not scientifically known or accepted at the time of the inspired writing. The point is that if the Bible says things like scientific information and man later discovers that to be true, the conclusion is that those men who spoke that must have been speaking by inspiration. How else could they have known that? Kyle Butt of Apologetics Press, in surveying the evidence, said this. Furthermore, if the omniscient ruler of the universe actually did inspire these books, this is important, listen to this. Scientific and medical eras that fill the other pages of other ancient writings, non-inspired texts, should be entirely absent from the biblical record. You get the point? In other words, if this is inspired of God, we're not going to find, well, you know, Matthew said something here, and we found out that's not true and that's a medical and scientific error. He just he missed the point. But we later learned that that's better than that. There would be no error if the Bible is inspired. All right? Let's, let's explore that. Let's talk about a couple of three things here as, as evidence. The, the rotundity of the earth. You're familiar with the fact that Proverbs 8 talks about the circle of the face of the deep. Isaiah 40. He sets on the circle of the earth. In both passages, the Bible talks about the circle or the, the, the roundness of the earth. You remember there was a time when men believed the earth was flat. Aristotle was one of the first to suggest the spherical nature of the earth. Magellan and Columbus demonstrated the earth was round, but the point is long before it was ever discovered or even suggested, the Bible had been talking about the circle of the earth. That scientific foreknowledge tells me that these men must have been writing by inspiration. Let's talk about the rotation of the earth. The book of Job talks about how that the, it, it is changed like the clay under a seal. It's the idea of taking a seal and then turning the clay so that you make an impression upon the clay. Well, in the 1500s, it was generally accepted that the earth was some immovable. Uh, Ptolemy had that concept in his mind. In 1533, Nicholas Copernicus explained the apparent ro- movement of the heavenly bodies was by the rotation of the earth on a daily basis. In 1851, that was finally demonstrated by Foucault with a suspended pendulum in Paris. You remember studying that in school and demonstrated that what the Bible had said all along was true. How did the Bible know that? How did the writers of the Bible know that? Only by inspiration. Now, this one is most interesting to me. Psalm 8 in verse 8. Matthew Fontaine Murray in the 1850s was sick one day and lying on his bed. And he had a son to come and read to him from the scriptures. And he read from Psalms 8. And the text says, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. And he asked his son, he said, go back and read that again. What did that say? Whatsoever passes through the paths of the sea. And he made this statement. He said, if the word of God says there are paths of the sea, they must be there and I will find them. And he discovered them. And I understand that our Navy and other sailing vessels use that very path. In other words, it's currents within the sea. So that an ocean vessel doesn't just take straight across the ocean, but follows the currents within the sea that he discovered from first reading Psalm 8 and verse 8. How did the psalmist know anything about the paths of the sea? It must have been by inspiration. Let's spend the rest of our time talking about prophecy and fulfillment. This is just a sampling again of some of the evidences. Now, what do we know about prophecy and fulfillment? Well, man cannot foreknow the future. Only God can foreknow the future. And if men foretold the future, it had to be by God. That's the only way they could have known the future. 
and details concerning the future is the point. Let's take, for example, the destruction of Babylon. In the interest of time, I want to move on to Tyre. The same point is made concerning Babylon, that the, the announcement of the utter destruction of Babylon never to be rebuilt, again, as the nation or city of Babylon. And it came to pass just as it was true. But I'm more interested at this juncture in Tyre, the city of Tyre. Exodus 20, uh, Ezekiel 30, 26. I'll get it right in a moment. Ezekiel 26. I don't have time to go through all the details. But Ezekiel prophesied that Tyre would be destroyed by the Chaldeans. That the ruins would be provided, uh, would provide a place for them to spread their nets. And I'm more interested in this juncture right here, that the ruins of the city would be dumped into the waters. That's interesting. And furthermore, there would finally be no more, meaning there would be utter destruction of Tyre and it would never be rebuilt again. Well, to make a long story short, uh, the city of Tyre thought they were indestructible because, uh, for, forget this line across here for a moment, and they, there was the old city of Tyre on the mainland, but then there was the new city that was out on the island that had the wall around the city and they felt that they were indestructible. No way we could be destroyed. Alexander the Great finally took him about seven months to build this causeway across there, taking the ruins of the old city and built a causeway so that he marched over into the city and finally destroyed the city. That's exactly what Ezekiel had talked about. Here's an aerial picture of that very causeway that was built, an actual picture of the causeway that was built from the mainland over to the city of Tyre. Done exactly like Ezekiel had foretold. How did Ezekiel know that? How did he know that? And by the way, by the way, remember Cyrus we talked about a moment ago? That was 200 years before Cyrus was born. That Cyrus by name would be the man. How did, how did Isaiah know that? He knew it by inspiration. That's the point. And finally, I want to close by looking at the prophecies of the Messiah. That could be a study within itself. I'm just, again, giving you a sampling. Not every lesson is going to have this much material fast. But I'm trying to give you a lot of information in a short period of time. There are over 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah. Details. For example, he'd be born of a virgin, a descendant of Abraham, of the house of David, born in Bethlehem, be taken to Egypt. He would perform miracles. He would be a minister in Galilee. He would cleanse the temple. He would ride into Jerusalem on a donkey, be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And that's just the beginning of the list. And every one of them came true. How did those writers know that? Only by inspiration. Well, hopefully that helps. This is the foundation of all we're going to be talking about this week. Evidence for faith. Here's the claim of inspiration. We talked about the nature of inspiration. And then there is abundance of evidence. And we've only looked at a small sampling of that. I appreciate your attention this morning.